Hi, this is Darcy Lowen, The Chainsaw, and you're listening to The Sixth Sense Podcast. All right, listeners, welcome back. It's been a long, long time since I've done one of these, but uh, it's been a long summer, and I think we're we're due for some hockey talk. And at this point in time, I'd like to welcome Post Media's Wayne Scanlon to the podcast. Wayne Scanlon, how are you doing? How's your summer going? Uh, my summer's going very well, thank you. Uh, it's, it's it's ending uh, quite suddenly, though it seems. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, September is uh, is next week, and the senators are preparing for their rookie camp and uh here we go again they're ready to crank up another season it's uh it seems like the the summer has gone by in the blink of an eye it has uh the reason one of the reasons why i wanted to have you on the podcast uh this week is because of the recent passing of brian murray um you you look back across the years this organization's 25 years old now has there been someone who has been as influential from from an organizational standpoint and from a community building standpoint as brian murray I don't think so, and it's, it's partly due to longevity. I can remember uh, when he arrived here, and it was during the lockout, so he was just kind of waiting to <laughs> to have a team to coach and to have a season in which to coach. Uh, and I remember sitting there watching a minor hockey game with him, the two of us just sitting in the stands, pretty much empty stands, and, and I'm kind of reintroducing myself to him. And, and when, I, when I look back now and, and with his passing, I think we're all reflecting on Brian and his impact in this community on this organization. Uh, he said at the time he, he just planned on being here a, a couple of years. He was going to come back closer to home, uh, coach a bit more, and then kind of fade into the sunset and have an opportunity to finish his, uh, his, his outstanding NHL career right in his own hometown. Um, I don't think he envisioned he was going to be around uh, as long as he would be. Um, and, and yet, ironically, you know, his life was cut short and his time atop the Senators uh, was cut short because, I, you know, he may still be the general manager today if he hadn't gotten, gotten sick with cancer. And, and as we know, he kind of booted himself upstairs to become an advisor to Pierre Dorian and, and did a fine job in that capacity. But I, I think if you combined uh, the longevity, um, the impact that he had as a coach, and as a GM, no, I don't think there's there's anybody else in the organization that has had the impact that Brian Murray has. If you had to look back across the last 13 years, what would you say Brian Murray's legacy is? Because if you look at the Senators' results, they're not necessarily as good as, as many have wanted or anticipated. Uh, it's been a long haul. I, th- I believe he still had the one playoff series victory. What would you say his legacy would be for the Ottawa Senators? Well, I still think... Um, and I think you and I have probably talked about this before. I still think he was a greater coach than he was a GM. I mean, I think his greatest asset was the ability to, to coach a, a group of men and get the most out of them uh, by just an, an extremely good communicator with his, his sense of humor and his sarcasm. I think he got everybody into the fold, whether it was a star player like a Daniel Alfredson or a, you know, a grinder like a, a Chris Neal. They both wanted to go through walls for Brian Murray. And so, I, I, you know, I think his greatest strength, and if you, if 
you look at his record, I mean, his greatest season was when he took the Senators to the Stanley Cup final in, in 06, 07, and they lost, uh, they lost to Anaheim. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's still the pinnacle, I think, as a general manager. And, and, and you've gone over his, his record over the years, and I know you've, you've discussed them. Um, you know, there's, there've been some uneven deals, uh, but I think, you know, on balance, he was a, he was a good GM. He made this a competitive team, and he saw them through a rebuild. Not all GMs get that opportunity to to stick around long enough to rebuild and and, and go on from there. Uh, and I think we're starting. We're still seeing, you know, the fruits of his work with the you know the Senators' outstanding and surprising uh, playoff run last spring. Uh, even as a as an advisor, he was he was on the ground floor for. You know, a, a lot of the trades and draft picks that that made that possible. Uh, so, you know, and I think Pierre Dorian, you know, made the said it as much at his farewell, uh, you know, the little ceremony they had for Brian at the the entire center the other day that they'll we'll still be feeling the impacts of, of Brian on this uh, organization for the years to come. This is a bit of a shameless plug, but uh, for, for Yahoo Sports, I, I recently wrote a piece uh, detailing the inability of the Senators to trade for Gary Roberts at the 2007 trade deadline and how that move or that inability to make that move uh, probably impacted the front office to the point where Eugene Melnick lost confidence in John Moncler as the general manager. And it, his inability to land a player at the desires of his owner uh, kind of paved the way for Brian Murray to come in. And I, I personally, I think it was probably one of the best things that happened in the organization, even though Ottawa lost the Stanley Cup finals that year, uh, that inability to acquire Gary Roberts led to Brian Murray being hired and he revamped the front office and it led to some very positive things for the organization, even though it took a couple of years, uh, for those results to actually manifest themselves on the ice. Uh, what do you feel about that time? And, um, was losing John Mockler one of the best things to happen in this organization? Oh, I think so. I, I, you know, I, I... You know, there really was not much going on depth-wise. They had a – obviously, they had a good team. They, they made it to the Stanley Cup final, a, a very veteran team. But there was really you know, nothing in the hopper. You know, there was really nothing doing in Binghamton. Uh, the, the cupboard was empty. And, and I think Brian stepped in and, and with his nephew, Tim Murray, uh, they did a great job building. The, you know, they, they ended up – uh, winning a Calder Cup with uh, with that organization in Binghamton and and kind of stalk this team for years to come, you could you could easily take issue with a, an individual draft pick or a trade. You know, you think about Ben Bishop leaving here and some of the some of the other moves that you could question. Um, but you know, on balance, I think he's done a he's done a tremendous job, in, including bringing you know the franchise player Eric Carlson here and ensuring. That uh, you know, moving moving down in the draft to make sure that they were to get a player of that caliber, um, you know, things like that, and and just his experience uh, at, at building an organization. He's he's done it before, in four other places, and and done a fine job. And I and I think, um, you know, the Senators are fortunate that that move happened exactly when it did. In retrospect, I, I find it really hard and challenging to evaluate Brian Murray as a general manager, not because of the moves that he made or, or the moves that he didn't make per se, but because you don't really know how the relationship between him and Eugene Melnick is. And even looking back at the Gary Roberts deal, that's an owner who wanted a specific player and the general manager at the time wasn't, wasn't able to bring that player in. Uh, I have, I've always kind of perceived Melnick as an impulsive and emotional guy. He's, he's 
a self-described super fan. How important was Brian Murray just to have around as a buffer? Well, I, I think it was very important, and including last year when you know Brian was no longer the general manager. But I think having him as a buffer allowed Pierre Dorian to do his job and Randy Lee to do his job. The thing about um, Eugene Melnick, when when things are good, he's like you said, he's a self-described super fan, and and he can slap you on the back when there's a good winning streak going, and they're and they're they're getting to the conference final, and and all is well, uh, and and he's there, you know, on camera and happy to be seen, uh, you know. But you know, I, I'm thinking about next year when Brian's not around, and and Pierre doesn't have that buffer anymore. Not only does he lose Brian as an advisor, and I think he was a great advisor, someone that he consulted, Pierre consulted every time that he that he made a move or thought of a move, and and that was you know I think really really smart. Um, he's losing Brian as a, as a buffer and the man you know the, the man between him and, and ownership, and that is gone. And Brian, nobody, I mean nobody, could talk to the owner. He was like a son almost to Eugene Melnick. And, you know, you just can't expect Pierre to just step in and have that same kind of relationship. And I think it's going to be very, very challenging for him to kind of keep the owner at an arm's length and, and allow himself the freedom to do his job. I guess if there is a pause, if we can look back at Pierre's time and say, okay, this is a this is an individual who was hired as part of that front office revamping. He came in at the same time as a Tim Murray, and maybe that longevity might buy him some leeway with Melnick. Is that fair to say? Oh, I think so. Um, you know, he was he was groomed all along, and and basically, you know, hand selected uh, by by Brian. Uh, and Brian, of course, had a history of. of you know, kind of selecting young young coaches or young GM types and and grooming them. I think he took great pride in that. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, and now that Pierre's had a full year as a general manager and had some had a taste of success, you know, he's he's been in all those meetings. He's he's been in all the talks with the GMs. He's he's comfortable. So you know, I think it's a it's a comfortable handoff from from Brian to Pierre, but you know, I, this is, this is uncharted water now is going into a new season, you know, with that same owner, uh, and without Brian Murray as that buffer. Looking at Ottawa's off season, it was a very conservative off season, uh, relatively speaking. Um, granted this is an organization that was one goal away from the Stanley cup final last year. Um, do you think the weight of expectations on this team will weigh heavy on this organization or, do you think there's a bit of leeway because Ottawa had a bit of unexpected success last year in the postseason? You know what? It's really hard to say how that's going to play out. I would, you would think most fans would recognize that, look, the league's really tight. Uh, the East is tight. They, they got on a bit of a roll. It could have been any other team. Um, you know, they were, they, were, they were healthy. They got a few breaks, and it all came together quite nicely, and everybody was still listening to Guy Boucher and following that system religiously. Um, I think, you know, a, an intelligent hockey fan would expect that there might be a little bit of a drop off. I, I don't know what to expect. I mean, I, would you would you be surprised if this team did very well and, and kind of matched last year's success? Or, or would you be surprised at all if, if they didn't make the playoffs? I mean, to me, to me, either one could conceivably happen. And you'd say, yeah, yeah, I could I could realistically see that. So. I think all bets are off, but in, in terms of what fan expectations are, 
it's hard to read, but I would think the intelligent ones will recognize that there is a possibility that this team is not not quite as as good as uh, as they seem to be with that run last year. Yeah, I think that's very very fair to say. Uh, the Senators have been a bubble playoff team for the past number of years, and you, you know you can never discount what Eric Carlson can do and how far he can carry a team. Uh, we've seen that. So the Eastern Conference is still relatively weak, I think, and there are a lot of susceptible teams, and I think the margin for, for victory isn't as large as it has been in the past. still think it's incredibly difficult to get through the Pittsburgh Penguins or the Washington Capitals, and you know we can talk about the fortuitous circumstances that led to Ottawa getting to the conference final, but this is a team that could very well be three points out of the playoffs, or or they could go a couple rounds. like. I, like it's it there's such a broad spread of what this team's capable of that you can't really discount anything at this point yeah and 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 you can't forget the parody in the league it's just uh you know we've we've never seen anything like this where you know like you look at look at florida we thought they might be a team because they look like a, a team a couple of years ago and they just kind of fell off the map but generally speaking from night to night you really don't know how it's going to go it's not like the old NHL where you kind of had the the haves and the have-nots. I mean, they're all they're all kind of close. And then you know some of the powerhouses that you you mentioned by name uh, are going to rise above you would expect. But it's going to be interesting. I, I think their health and their goaltending, and I I think they they probably need someone to break through. You know, is, is Thomas Shabbat going to be on this team? Is is he going to have an impact if he if he does? break through and make the roster and, and Colin White, you know, there's a lot of excitement about him and, and whether or not, you know, he can have a role here as soon as next season. So, you know, if, if one of their grade A prospects were to break through, um, it, it could make it quite interesting. There seems to be a, a little bit of pressure, maybe not overt pressure in the media per se, but it, it seems if Ottawa is going to take that big step, you look at the roster on paper, most of their best players are still on relatively inexpensive deals, uh, but they're all coming up on free agency over the next year or two. They're a relatively old team too, by a lot of standards. Uh, this is kind of their window. And I think if they're going to take that leap, especially while the team is cheap, they need guys like Shabbat and White to step in and not only step in, but play very well for this team to take another step. Well, absolutely. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen with, with Eric Carlson and if they could step up and get him signed, you know, long in advance of that, that contract being renewed, uh, you know, getting out in front of that one. But there's a, a very cheap player. Kyle Turris is another one that they're getting at a discount right now. Um, and, and, you know, they'll have him for, you know, another year or two before he's got to re-up. But, you know, that's another one I think they'd like to get in front of and get him back sooner rather than later. But, they, they absolutely need, uh, like any, any budget team, and, and they, they're not that far off, you know, some of the, the, the top cap spenders, but they're still, I guess, technically a budget team. They're not a team that wants to go right to the ceiling. And, you know, they need some of those, some of those bargains to, to pay off early on and to, to play a, a, ahead of their big payday that, you know, obviously as a young player is going to be coming up. Speaking of budget constraints, uh, earlier on you mentioned that Brian Murray's absence is going to be felt in the front office is because there is no buffer. There is no longer a buffer between the ownership and the front office. Just from an assessment standpoint, Daniel Alfredson left earlier this offseason. Brian Murray's now gone. How did, how did the Senators fill that void? Uh, over the past number of years, it seems like whenever a position has come up, they've had an internal hire right now you look at the ranks i I don't know if there is that person within the organization right now what are they going to do to fill the void 
I don't know. I mean, uh, like a, a, a Chris Phillips, I see Chris Phillips is involved in some of the preseason promotion. Um, uh, and there's a guy that stepped up to the microphone and I thought gave an outstanding presentation at, at Brian Murray's uh, ceremony last week. Um, I'd like to see him get a little more involved. And I think with, with, with Alfie gone, I mean, Sean Donovan is another former player that, that is out there on the on the ice and and helping the young players and and working on their skating and that and that kind of thing. But I think it, you know in that sort of advisory role and as as a mentor and particularly as a, a former defenseman, you know I, I think Chris Phillips is a guy that that could step up and uh, and play a role off the ice. To, I mean nobody's going to replace Daniel Alfredson and he's the guy that I think some people tabbed as a potential future GM for this organization. And we don't know exactly why he left, but clearly he's, he's due to have some family time and, and that's his first priority right now. So who knows what the future will be with him if there is one with him in this organization. But Chris Phillips is a guy to me that, that comes to mind as a, a guy that would be a, a really important hire, both in terms of the organization and its young players, uh, but also the fan base. Yeah, familiarity is a good thing and breeds a little confidence in the fan base. Uh, do you think there's any reason, though, why the Senators might be a little hesitant to look uh, outside the organization? Outside the organization to... Uh, just to bring in a new voice, uh, new opinions, new views, uh, anything that can augment uh, what they currently don't have in the front office? No, I, I, I certainly think there, the potential is there. Um, you know, I, I think bringing in Alfie was as about uh, as much about giving Alfie a spot in the organization, you know, as the, the franchise player, uh, kind of, what do you want, Daniel? What do you want to do? Do you want to be a kind of a helper on the ice in that kind of a coaching role, or do you want to be in hockey operations? So I think they more or less created a role for Alfie to, to, you know, give him something that he would find suitable and where he could help the organization. And I, you know, I, I thought it was a pretty good fit, but, you know, I think Alfie also saw how much how much work is involved and how much time has to be devoted. It's it's pretty much twenty four seven. You know, Pierre Dorian and Randy Lee they just they just eat, sleep, drink hockey. It's that's all they do. They breathe it. And so, you know, I think in part Alfie was withdrawing a little bit from that, needing a little, bit, you know, somewhat of a break. He's got four kids, a young family, and and wants to be a, a hockey dad again. I think for a little while. But, you know, as to whether or not he necessarily has to be replaced, I would suggest, you know, Chris Phillips, if he's interested, would be someone that could step into that role. But otherwise, I think they just have to wait and see if there's a if there's a need somewhere where they, they feel they're they're a little short. Um, certainly in terms of a, as an advisor, I think losing Brian Murray is huge because there's there's not I, I equate it almost to, you know, in baseball, like a Don Zimmer, you know, the. The, the manager of a baseball team usually has a bench coach that's that's been everywhere that's seen everything and you know in a pinch you turn to that guy and and he can tell you you know what he thinks of a given situation uh, you know i think that's where they're really going to miss a guy like brian that had been around the league forever knew everything knew everybody um so that's that's the biggest hole that i can see finally uh before i let you go i just want your last 
opinion of Brian Murray. Um, what would you say stands out most for you over the past 13 years? Is, is there a moment or is there a trade that is just emblematic of Brian Murray where you can sit back and say, oh, yeah, that, that, was, that was Brian in a nutshell? Yeah, I don't know if there's a, a single moment, but I, I think I'd like to think of him most as a, as a coach. And so I, you know, I think about that team you know, that Stanley cup team that he had, I, I, I kind of wish they could have had a do over against, against Anaheim. I just felt like they, they kind of, you know, I think the two out of three uh, series, if you went two to three best of sevens against Anaheim, they're probably going to win, you know, two, <laughs> two of the three, but, you know, I, I think Ottawa could have competed a little bit better. There was a long gap after that, that regular season and then having to fly out West and they just seemed to get behind the eight ball um, before the season, hardly the, uh, the series hardly started. So, you know, I, I like to think about him behind the bench, uh, giving it to officials and imploring his team uh, to play better than they are and getting the most out of a, out of a team, you know, as much as any coach could, I still think he was the best coach the senators ever had. Definitely agree with that. Well, Wayne, thank you very much for coming on the program. Uh, listeners, you can follow Wayne on Twitter at Hockey Scanner, and you can look for his stuff in Post Medium. Wayne, thank you very much for coming on the show, and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Graham. My pleasure. I never thought it would happen to me, but I never thought it would happen to me, but no one should ever have to look at themselves. That's so welcome back. Right now, joining me on the line is a recurring guest that we've had on uh, many times before. He is Rob Volman. He writes for NHL.com. He also writes for ESPN Insider. He has just published, I believe this is the fourth hockey abstract annual that he has put out, and it's available for purchase now on Amazon.com. Rob Volman, welcome back to the show. How are you? Well, it's great to be back on the show. Uh, I'm doing great. How's your summer? Very busy. Very, very busy. Got married. It, it's been keeping me busy. But Hockey Abstract 2017, uh, congratulations on putting out your fourth annual. Um, how was the writing process this time around? <laughs> well, you know, having put out four books about hockey stats, I think it's safe to tell you that I did not get married. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a good, it's a good process. It's a lot of fun to write these books. It's not just, a, it's not just something I put in the book make the readers feel better. It's, also, it's honestly uh, a greater pleasure to write these books than most people can imagine. Uh, and most people wouldn't believe it if I tried to explain it. It's a lot of fun to put together sort of my take on hockey, my statistical take on hockey, and actually have people want to read it and, and enjoy it and participate in it. It's very rewarding and it, and it feels great. Now, one of the things I like about your books is that every year you seem to put new wrinkles in. Uh, you always have like a host of contributors. Um, essentially, what's, what contributors do you have this year who are new? And what, uh, what wrinkles have you thrown in? What's different about your book this year as opposed to previous years? Well, we always try to keep the best of previous editions and then to uh, sort of act on some of the feedback uh, of areas we can improve. So as always, I mean, we try to be very upbeat and passionate and we've got the player usage charts and uh, we have the questions that we, we start with the question and then we try to answer the question. So all the, all the, uh, everything you're used to in previous editions is still in place. And in terms, in terms of my guests, my guest, uh, co-authors, uh, Tom is back once again. Tom, a wide innovator of GBT and Bakota and many other things. Brilliant guy. 
Uh, so he's back again. Ian couldn't join us this summer, but we did have a number of other people join us, including one of my favorites, uh, Matt Kane. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's got the Puck Plus Plus website, also writes for Hockey Graphs. He's one of my favorites right now. And he contributed a chapter on the power play. And we've got several others. There's a, there's a friend of mine from Winnipeg named Charles Mousseau. Uh, there's, I call him Chuck. Uh, there's also Alan Lowtide Mitchell up in Edmonton. Uh, he's one of the, he's been blogging longer, longer than almost anybody on hockey stats. And he's got a radio show up in Edmonton and he wrote something about the, uh, the, the botched Oilers re- rebuild and what the Vegas Golden Knights could learn from that among other organizations. And so, yeah, we got quite a few writers in there. And of course, we still have, uh, we had a student paper competition. So a couple of the chapters were contributed, uh, by the winners, the grad and undergrad winners of the student paper competition we held, uh, at Carleton University at the Ottawa. Uh, hockey analytics conference at Carleton University, and uh, the undergrad winner Jeremy Sylvan wrote something very interesting about uh, uh, whether or not we can predict injuries. To what extent can we predict injuries? And the the grad winner Helmet, uh, he had a great uh, chapter about uh, how artificial intelligence is being used uh, with the, the video technology that we have to get more detailed information about what's happening on the ice. That's fantastic. Going back to your first annual, one of the things that you predicted off the hop was that Ottawa would be the president's trophy winner that season. Uh, unfortunately <laughs> that never happened, but, um, what, what do you make of the senators, uh, this season? I, I look at their success last year in the postseason. I see an organization that had like a negative goal differential, negative shot differential, but they found a way to win those one goal games. Are, are the senators a statistical outlier or are they actually better than people give them credit for? Cause it seems like a lot of pundits out there, are dismissing the Senators as a, as a one-off, that their success can't be replicated. Uh, what's your take on the Senators this season? Yeah, random variation does have a big impact in hockey. Um, so you're right that, you know, sometimes just getting the bounces at the right time, uh, winning those one-goal games, uh, that can often make the difference. And, you know, if they had gotten one more bounce, they would have been in the Stanley Cup against Nashville. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think people can't overlook the importance of coaching. And in the past, a lot of teams have, or actually even just this summer, uh, a lot of teams that had coaching openings, they wound up uh, kind of going off the board and hiring coaches with very little or, or possibly no uh, NHL experience, like Bob Bugner or, or Phil Housley or, or Travis Green. Uh, whereas last summer, when Ottawa had their opening, they decided to basically pursue the two coaches that had among the most uh, experience and the, and, and the greatest tr- uh, track record of success. Uh, I'm talking, of course, of, of Guy Boucher and, and Mark Crawford. And I think, you know, Ottawa's success, I think, well, we will have to watch these other teams this year and see how they do, but I think that that's the model you should pursue. Uh, I think the value of coaching is very underrated. And if you want a, a good example of that, just consider Mike Sullivan. Look at the Penguins right before he was hired, and look at what the Penguins have done since he was hired. And, and uh, now, I'm not saying Mike Sullivan deserves all the credit, nor am I saying that Crawford and Boucher deserve all the credit in Ottawa. I'm just saying that I think people are maybe undervaluing a little bit the importance of coaching. And uh, that's where I think uh, perhaps um, Ottawa outperformed last season. Now, this year that won't be the case. I don't think they're going to take anyone by surprise this year. They're going to be taken seriously. Uh, who knows which way the bounces will go. They're sort of one of those uh, you know bubble teams. They're not a, a clear playoff team. But then again, they're not a, a lottery team either. So they're going to have to get off to a good start and uh, hopefully avoid injuries. That's, by the way, what I think went wrong with my prediction 2013. Remember, that was the year they were playing without Eric Carlson and without Jason Spezza and still made the playoffs. And so I figured, wow, if you just take that same team and add Carlson and Spezza back on, you know, they're going to be even better. 
but the fact of the matter is I've learned since then, and that's one advantage of, of being open and transparent with my model, is I've learned since then that actually, no, that's not true. You can't just look at players who are injured and add them back into the lineup because the players who replaced Carlson and Speth of that particular year all had career seasons. You look at a lot of those players and what they've done since then, uh, and it's nothing compared to what they did when they were filling in for Carlson and Spezza. And so maybe that's a lesson for the Tampa Bay Lightning. They think they can just put Stamkos back in the lineup and, and just add his value. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true because there's a lot of players that really, really stepped up in his absence that are going to get pushed back down now that he's back. And I think from an Ottawa perspective, if people are counting on Tampa Bay to improve exponentially with Stamkos, that's good news for a bubble team like Ottawa. Maybe maybe Tampa won't be one of those teams that leaps, leapfrogs them in the standings this year. Sticking with your coaching point, uh, historically, if we look back at the last number of years with Ottawa, uh, they've had a lot of success uh, introducing coaches during their first season. Uh, you look back at like a Paul McLean, a Corey Clouston, a Dave Cameron. There was a lot of success early on uh is, is that part of a trend that you've noticed statistically where coaches who come in and you mentioned mike sullivan as well i think that's a great uh other person to bring in or even if you want to go back further with pittsburgh and look at what dan bilesma did after michelle Terrian came in how many teams have that real push when they introduce a new coach and is that something that ought, and if it is kind of like a one-year thing where there is some regression the following year <coughs> sorry excuse me uh, is that something that the senator should really, really be concerned with? Well, the proper way to answer that question statistically isn't just to look at the teams and look at the average improvement when they have new coaches. It's actually take teams and, and, and divide them into two buckets, teams that didn't get a new coach and teams that got a new coach. And each bucket, of course, are teams with the same number of points. So basically, if you have an 80-point team to get the new coach in one bucket, then put an 80-point team that didn't get a new coach in the other bucket bucket. And I think you'll find that the, the, te- the bucket of teams that didn't get a new coach, they improved by just as much as those who did. So that's a little bit of an illusion. It's a bit of a narrative that we sometimes look at when we think it's the, it's the coach. But I think the difference with Crawford and Boucher versus the other coaches that Ottawa's had is that these coaches have a track record of success uh, in other leagues with other teams. Uh, they have a lot of experience and success. I think we, we have a better idea of what to expect from them. Uh, Dave Cameron, I might add, yes, he had a long track record of success, but it was in the OHL. And one little thing I've learned is that uh, for whatever reason, I haven't figured out why, but for whatever reason, really, really good OHL coaches, either now or throughout history, for whatever reason, they can never translate that success to the uh, the NHL. I mean, think of all the great OHL coaches of the past that pop into your head. None of them had success in the NHL. Now, the one exception would be uh, Peter DeBoer, because uh, he was a very good OHL coach, uh, and he did great things with San Jose. However, I mean, his first two tours of duty with New Jersey and, and, uh, and Florida weren't, weren't very successful. So I think there it's actually rather a case of him learning in the NHL on the job and, and then going to San Jose as opposed to translating his OHL success to the NHL. So, again, I think there's reason to believe that, uh, you know, the success that Boucher and Crawford had is a little bit different. Uh, than the success by, by coaches like Dave Cameron. Yeah, and for that reason, I think looking at the Florida situation this offseason, I think Bob Bugner is going to be a fantastic uh, case study in terms of what they do, especially uh, considering some of the personnel moves that they made this uh, this summer. Um, sticking with Ottawa, uh, it was a very conservative offseason by uh, relative standards. Uh, the only real significant change was that the organization lost Mark Mathot through the expansion process to Vegas. You talked earlier about player usage and obviously losing a defensive partner for Eric Carlson, who spent the past five seasons playing with him, is a significant move 
irrespective of what you think of uh, Mathot's ability to uh, have positive effects on Eric Carlson. Looking at Ottawa's situation, uh, they have a number of young defensemen that they may give a look to. Uh, is there any defenseman on Ottawa who stands out as an ideal partner or someone that the senator should give the first look to? Well, to be honest, I would put Carlson with the team's more or less worst defenseman. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, Carlson is one of those rare defensemen that can essentially play with anybody. And, uh, you know, Mark Mathod is actually a good example of that because before coming to Ottawa, he was like more of a number four, number five guy and not a particularly excellent one or more run-of-the-mill number four, number five guy. And then he goes to Ottawa and everyone thinks he's a top-pairing defenseman with $4.9 million. Um, it's no coincidence that that happens as soon as he starts playing with Eric Carlson. And if you don't believe me, just look at Eric Carlson's partners before that. I mean, Philip Kuba, for example. What happened to him after he was broken up from Carlson? So given that Ottawa's blue line isn't really that strong, isn't really that deep, uh, one way to stretch the lineup, the same way the Los Angeles Kings play Derek Forbort with Drew Doughty, you do the same thing in Ottawa. Grab the, the player that's number six on the depth chart, put him with Carlson, and then you can have, uh, say, uh, Spinoff and Cece uh, as the second pair. And uh, and you still have, you know, uh, Clayson and Weidman. I mean, those are really good third-pairing defensemen. So unless it's one of them that you put up with Carlson, I mean, they can continue to function as effective third-pairing defensemen. Uh, and that's something that you can only do if Carlson is sort of more or less carrying someone on the top there. Yeah, I think that's a frightening part, though. I think a lot of people will look at Ottawa's second pairing last year, and, and Cody Ceci and Dion Phaneuf, they struggled mightily. Uh, any Take any underlying metric that you want. That's a, that's a pairing that gave up a ton of goals, gave up a ton of uh, shots to the opposition, and it, they're... It's it's hard to it's really hard to look past that duo and say okay these are guys that we can count upon to play hard minutes. Well, yeah, I mean, I would. I mean, I think Carlson would should handle as many minutes as he can, which he does. And you know, there's of course there's this myth out there that obviously the Ottawa Senators fans know is a myth, but outside Ottawa, there's this big myth that Carlson is weak defensively, and so. Uh, uh, but of course, Senators fans know better. They know that Carlson should be out there handling the tough minutes. Uh, uh, as many minutes as he can handle at both ends of the ice. And uh, and it's true that uh, that Tunuf and, and CC sure had some, some rocky periods. Maybe they could shake things up a little bit. But uh, but I still think that, uh, you know, they make the most sense on the second pair. In fact, I'm even looking for CC to make a, a little bit of a jump offensively. I think that uh, uh, you have a scoring boost this year. Um, so if you're in a fantasy hockey pool and you're like in the – you know, a deep pool, and you're in the 15th round. You need to round up your defenseman, and I mean, Cece's bound to still be there. You have picked him up. What What is it about Cody Cece's game that you think um, gives him the opportunity to take that jump? Well, I don't think he ever really got the opportunities in uh, over the past couple of years uh, playing with Benoit. Like you said, he's handling the tough minutes. They haven't really used him as much as they could in offensive situations. And furthermore, you might have noticed at his underlying numbers. Uh, his shooting percentage was down. Uh, the team's shooting percentage was down when he was on the ice. And a lot of that is usually just luck luck. So, uh, you know, if he, if, you know, the bounces go his way a little bit more, he's the sort of player that could uh, top 30 points. From an even strength perspective, I'd agree with that. But in Ottawa, I just don't see the power play minutes being there for him to justify being a high or just a worthwhile fantasy pick. Well, it's true that Ottawa tends to use uh, the extra forward on, on the power play a lot, but, uh, you know, it is possible that you know, CC will get some more opportunities this year. Uh, I mean, with Mathot gone, I mean, I think 
despite the fact that he's likely not going to play with Carlson, I mean, he will probably get more time, a little more time with Carlson, maybe a, a stretch of games, maybe a little bit of power play time, and that alone ought to boost him by a few points. And, and if he makes the most of it, then that might turn into more permanent opportunity. It's just a hunch. I mean, my hunch is no better than anyone else's, but uh, it's just a hunch that CC does have the potential of, uh, of, of actually being a good 30-point defenseman this year if uh, – you know, if you're in a deep fantasy pool. Well, I hope you're right because they, they need a little bit more from Cody CC this season. Um, looking, looking at your hockey abstract book, one of the things that you, you always do is a good team summary and synopsis of, of what you could possibly expect this season. Um, moving beyond the defensive picture for the Ottawa Senators uh, is where you could say, Oh, these set of circumstances might provide an opportune moment for, for some Senators players. Well, uh, well, let me ask you this: uh, Like from your perspective in Ottawa, how what's your assessment of uh, Mark Stone and, and Mike Hoffman? What are your assessments of those two players? I thought Mark Stone struggled a little bit down the stretch. Obviously, injuries played played a, a small percentage of of that. I love Mark Stone as a player. Um, I don't think he gets enough league wide love. Um, Mike Hoffman's obviously an offensively dynamic player. He shoots from everywhere. He can score from anywhere. And he's a threat anytime he's on the ice. But I mean, he has his shortcomings defensively as well. And I think if you looking at those guys as top six forwards, uh, I'm loath to use Mike Hoffman on a line with a Bobby Ryan Bay where the defensive shortcomings can be exposed. Um, but I really like both players. Yeah, I think Mark Stone is uh, like a lot of people outside Ottawa. I think he's just sort of a run-of-the-mill kind of second-line player when in reality, if you look at his underlying numbers, Mark Stone is a, is a very, very strong top-line, two-way uh, player. And so I think he's a, a point of interest when watching the Ottawa Senators. And I agree with your assessment of Mike Hoffman. I think you're bang on there. Uh, and they do have a really good forward depth in Ottawa. I mean, they didn't always, but you might have noticed late last season, they picked up a bunch of uh, depth players um, at the deadline, including some are still with the team, like Burroughs. Uh, Ryan was sort of reborn in the playoffs. Uh, so if that continues, that'll help their depth as well. And, uh, and of course, Clark MacArthur's return to health. Uh, so really their depth problems pretty much just evaporated almost overnight. Uh, but then another player that I'd like to look at statistically is, um, now listen, you forgive me. I, I never pronounced his, his name right. Is it Boro, Borowitsky? How do you think? Borowieski. Borowieski? Borowieski. Okay. Well, well, Borowieski led the league in hits last year. That was the first time that Matt Martin did not lead the league in hits in, uh, I don't know, forever. So Borowiecki, yep. um, Mark, right? I'll just call him Mark. Mark, he uh, led the league in hits. Uh, however, uh, there's a couple things about hits that we should talk about, which we're going to talk about that. First of all is that uh, hits are recorded differently from one arena to another. Each arena has its own set of scorekeepers. And in some arenas, uh, you know, everything's a hit. In other arenas, nothing's a hit. Uh, there doesn't appear to be a common definition for that that's used the same throughout the league which is why some teams have huge differences in their hit totals at home and on the road. And so you have to make an adjustment for that. And you also have to make adjustments for ice time because he doesn't get a lot of ice time, um, especially for a defenseman. Uh, but once you make some of these adjustments, he still remains uh, one of the league's top hitters. Uh, now, some people will say, well, so what? What does hitting have to do with anything? Uh, and unfortunately, it doesn't have much to do with everything statistically, which is why I prefer recording hits differently. I don't think it should count as a hit unless you actually separate the player from the puck. Uh, if you're just throwing a hit, um, but the player keeps the puck or he already made the play and, uh, and it's a successful play, I don't think that should really count as a hit. I mean, you can call it like a, a body contact or something. But
But I think by definition, a hit is when you knock a player off the puck and cause a turnover of some kind. Now, in that regard, I'm not sure if Borowiecki still rates as highly as everybody else. But I still think that's an interesting thing to watch when you're watching the Senators, is, is watching, uh, you know, that player's physical play and how often it actually causes turnovers or not. The one thing that I liked about the left side of Ottawa's defense last year is you look at how their left defenseman would step up in the neutral zone to make a play and try and disrupt uh, the offensive rush. I, like I look at Finuf and Borowiecki, and th- those were the two physical defensemen who would step up and try and make that play and separate the guys from the puck or at least disrupt the rush and hopefully create an offside or something. But... Leading up to the season, like I wouldn't rely on that guy very heavily just because the, the results were not there. But last season was a marked improvement over his past few seasons. Now, is that a complete function of Guy Boucher's Simpson, or system? Sorry, Probably in my mind. But uh, to his credit, I thought he played way better than he has in the past. Yeah, again, it comes back to coaching. So, you know, in Hockey Abstract 2017, we actually have little sections where I update questions we've explored in previous positions, like who's the best hitter. And so, you know, Borrell was discussed there. Also, who's the best shot blocker? And it surprises some people outside Ottawa that Eric Carlson's in that conversation as one of the league's best shot blockers. Um, and then who's the best at face-offs? Uh, and I think we've discussed this before on the show, Graham, but I don't judge face-offs based on face-off winning percentage. I base a player's face-off abilities on the number of shot attempts that occur within 10 seconds of the draw. So, like, if you're in the offensive zone and uh, you take a shot or two, within 10 seconds of the draw, I figured you won the face-off. Whereas if you don't, I figured the defensive center won the face-off. And so from that perspective, it gives us a, a bit more of a clue on how to evaluate centers like Kyle Turris and Derek Broussard and others uh, in terms of their face-off success. And it's usually the same, it's usually the usual suspects at the top of the list. I mean, Patrick Bergeron's the best no matter how you, you know, how, no matter how you cut the chicken there. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are going to enjoy sort of the different take that we have on hitting on shot blocking and on face-offs and on, on other areas as well. Going back to our discussion on hits, if you're, you're looking for positive results, I don't think you throw a hit or you win a face-off and it translates to the other team gathering the puck shortly thereafter and going back down the ice. Like Even though your team touched the puck first, that shouldn't constitute a win, right? Over the past number of years, there's been a number of great strides made just to look at things a little bit differently. But in your mind, are there any other statistics where... You know, people are starting to look at them a little bit differently and, and look for, okay, yeah, so A, A plus B equals C, but, you know, shouldn't we be also, believe, also be looking for D as well? Yeah, a lot of the analysis these days is, is focused on the goaltending. I mean, you'd be surprised how many new goalie stats we get every year um, for a long time now. You'd be surprised how many people are devoted to goaltending. That's an area people like to study. I think partly because the goalie's job is just so obvious. Whereas, like, the skaters have different roles. I mean, we talked about Boro, he's got one role. We talked about Carlton, he's got a different role. We talked about Hoffman, he's got one role, versus Stone, who's got another. So, goaltending is sort of the one position where everybody has the same role, you know, stop the puck. And so, that's where a lot of people like to study, and they like to, you know, look at one stat after another. And we do have a chapter that looks at all the different stats there. But if there's one thing I'm going to say about goaltending stats, is I really, really wish, like, I would love it if we eventually reached the day where the goalie win gets thrown away, where we just abandon the idea of giving a goalie credit for a win. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me because a win requires scoring goals. Goalies don't do that. And also, goals against are a combination of the number of shots you face, which he has no control over, and whether he stops them. So I don't know why we're giving goalie, goalies credit for wins and losses. I mean, we don't give Eric... I mean, Eric Carlson doesn't have a win-loss record, so why do goalies have a win-loss record? And 
And I just wish we could just get rid of that stat completely. Uh, like, what do you think? Well, I think baseball's gone that way. I think if you're looking at wins and losses, that's gone. But nobody really cares that much about it. Obviously, it has some impact in, in the way that they dole out the annual awards. I think if you look at uh, Rick Porcello's season last year in Boston, I think his win total was it factored in it, and it had to. But I think if you look into like fielding independent pitching and and other metrics that have evolved in baseball, I think hockey is following the same model. Um, I, I'm hoping eventually we'll get to the point where we can stop looking at just uh, like shot when we're assessing like shot quality. We can look at not only like location, but look at velocity of the puck, like release of the puck, and then we can actually start to gauge okay which goalies are the best at, at reacting and and handling the circumstances that are laid out for them. Oh, that's a great point. Um, because one of the problems, that, you know, I do discuss this in the book. One of the problems with save percentage is that we have such parity with goalies, like such incredible parity of goalies that it's really not possible to statistically separate one goalie from another using save percentage alone. I mean, just as an example, the difference between Devin Dubnik and Braden Holtby is one goal every 10,000 shots. Um, and, and even a wider one, like Yaroslav Halak was put on waivers and everybody passed on him. You know, the difference between Halak and Holtby is basically one goal every four or five games. Like, it's, 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 there's such parity. And so as a result, we need to find ways to drill deeper into the save percentage statistic and use shot quality. Now, as you know, we're, we're already looking at shot quality, oh, sorry, shot location. If you mentioned velocity, the angle of the shot, there's a few things we're already doing, like we're taking a look at rebounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the score sheets don't tell you which shot is a rebound, but just based on the amount of time that elapses between shots and the location of the shot, we can sort of statistically suss out which shots are rebounds. And from that, we can get an idea which goalie is facing more rebounds than another and maybe how well they're coping with those rebounds. Another example is shots off the rush. Based on the events in the the game file, we can test out basically which shot was taken off the rush, and those tend to be more dangerous as well. So we're already starting to get beyond shot location into a few other areas. But you're right, it it would be great to actually go that extra mile and have like the velocity of the shot and the angle of the shot. And then one of my favorites is the release. Uh, because I think yeah. that's a big factor that right now we have really no information. And that's where I was going to go next. Like, how, how realistically, how far away do you think we are from getting these kind of numbers or uh, analysis? How many years away are we, Rob? Uh, not far away. Some teams already have it. Like the, the more cutting edge teams um, have, uh, they're all they already track that information. They already have manual trackers that record which shots were screened, partially screened, or not screened at all. Uh, they also record whether the release was screened or whether the shot itself was screened. They also, uh, you know, mentioned whether it was screened by a defending player or an opposing player. And there's always some interesting results. For instance, screens are very effective. I mean, they they uh, they increase your chance of scoring by a factor of five if the goalie is fully screened. Um, so basically, your chance of scoring goes from say four percent to twenty percent if the goalie is fully screened. And uh, ideally, you want to screen the release, not the actual movement of the puck, but the actual release. And actually, it's more effective uh, if you can get the defenseman to screen your shot. So that's another reason I, I hate shot blocking, is because when you're blocking your shot, you're also blocking the release, and your goalie can't see the puck getting released. That's another reason why I don't like shot blockers. Get out of the way, let your goalie see the release. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of information we've discovered already in studying screens. The next step is to figure out which players are best at setting up those screens uh, and which defensemen are the best at pushing away those screens. Because if I can find you some run-of-the-mill player uh, that actually is really, really good at screens, I mean, that might be worth signing you 
like just for a million bucks, two million bucks for a one-year deal. And if he's really good at setting up screens, he might earn his contract right then and there. So I think that's really the next step is identifying which players are consistently effective at setting up those screens. Yeah, and I think you're starting to get into the underlying metrics that are that are not wholly available and and could be some of the things that tip the scales in, in a league that has so much parity. Um, now, before I let you go, Rob, uh, one quick question for you. Uh, what do you predict for the Ottawa Senators this season? Uh, well... I'm not as quite as gun hopeful about putting exact numbers on it. In the opening chapter, uh, we do we do a bit of statistical analysis and we, we put a number on it. But you'll notice in my book, I basically have a checklist which just gives you sort of a rough idea of, of where I have each team. And uh, because I have the centers basically as one of those bubble teams, uh, I think you can basically infer from that that uh, I think a, a good expectation for the centers is to be in the in the mid 90s. Uh, and then to basically have 100 points as their upside goal uh, to try to, you know, get to triple digits. Uh, but uh, with that danger of sliding down into the 80s and therefore missing the playoffs. But I'd say the, the, the sort of consensus number would probably be, I'm going to say, like 96, 97 points, 96, somewhere in there. Perfect. I'm kind of the same mind. Rob, uh, you can pick up Hockey Abstract at Amazon.com. Uh, you also have a PDF version of the Hockey Abstract as well uh, that I believe is less expensive. Uh, where can listeners find that? Yeah, and I'd also like to add we have a French version as well, both print and digital. It's going to be available any, any day now. I'm actually just ready to hit the button to make it go live on Amazon. So uh, everything, whether you want the English or the French, whether you want digital or print, Go to hockeyabstract.com, click on the picture of the book. You'll have links to Amazon. You'll have links to where you can buy whatever edition and copy that you want. And uh, and I might add, if you'd like to actually go back and get digital versions of all my books, click on the PDF bundle, and there's actually a discount if you buy all digital copies together. And uh, the French version, English version, they're both in there. Uh, and so, you know, you don't have to choose between them in that case. You can get both languages and then get all the earlier versions of the book as well. And again, you can follow uh, Rob Volman at Rob Volman NHL on Twitter, and you can also read his work at NHL.com and ESPN Insider. Rob, thanks for coming on, and I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope to talk to you again during the season. Yeah, I look forward to checking in with you as uh, as time goes on, and then for you to razz me when the, when the Senators <laughs> seriously outperform my, my belief projection. Yes, President's Trophy 2017-18. Here we go.